morning, I'll invite you, if you have your Bible or you want to grab the Pew Bible in front of you, turn to the end of Exodus chapter 10. The end of Exodus chapter 10, page 62 in the Pew Bible, if you're using that. This is our 14th week in this series through the book of Exodus. And the title of our message this morning is One True God, the Promise of Passover. The Promise of Passover. Now, we're going to cover quite a bit of Scripture here today, and we're going to do so by, by moving rather quickly, skipping over some segments to really track the narrative of these incredible events that took place. And then two weeks from now, we're going to come back, and we're going to look at some of these verses that we're going to kind of move over quickly, and we're going to see through this section that, as, that we work through fast, and the next section, how God establishes these rules and these, these um, practices for his people to remember these great events that we're going to talk about today. So today we're going to focus on the events themselves, and then we'll focus on the meaning of the religious worship that God creates to help his people remember these things. We're going to pick up the text this morning in the conversation that we ended upon last week. Moses is standing before Pharaoh in the palace after three days of absolute, total, complete darkness in the ninth plague. A plague of darkness that was so thick, so complete that the Bible says the darkness could be felt. It was that dark. The people of Egypt couldn't rise. They couldn't do anything productive. They couldn't go anywhere. They were simply stuck in the darkness. And as Moses comes before Pharaoh, we read, Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. Now, this is the end of chapter 10 right here. And in our English translations of the Bible, where we see that chapter break and we see the header, there's chapter 11. But as I often point out to you, the, the chapter and verse divisions in our Bibles, those, those are not inspired, right? The original author didn't write them out that way. It was, a, it was a story that was being written down. And so we shouldn't immediately think, well, the story ends because I see a, another set of numbers, a new chapter. In fact, this is a really great example of why we need to read the whole context of the Bible, because verse 29 is not the end of the conversation between Moses and Pharaoh. Moses has responded to Pharaoh, yes, but then we see at the start of chapter 11, God speaks to Moses and gives him more to say. So look at chapter 11, verses 1. We'll read all the way through 10. Yahweh said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. So speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor, every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And then we have this kind of parenthetical insert here, an explanation of another aspect of God's work during this time. Verse 3 tells us, Yahweh gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So now Moses, with, with his favor, he speaks to Pharaoh and all the people there in his court who are listening. Moses said, thus says Yahweh, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again." But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, 
you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And now, here finally, we read of the conclusion to this conversation. So Moses went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. I think that hot anger is Pharaoh's hot anger. And Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders, wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Now, moving forward from here, we're going to skip through some verses. We're going to follow the narrative of the events through chapter 12, and then, like I said, we'll come back to those verses that are going to explain the detail and the meanings of what God is doing in all of these things that he's commanding the people to do and remember in the message in two weeks. But here I want us to focus on what takes place after this conversation, after this promise of what is about to come, what God then does. So look at Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be, the month of, shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel, that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's home, a one lamb for a household. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now, this prophetic promise through Moses of what is about to come has been made. There is judgment, there is death that is about to come upon the Egyptian people, Moses declares, with the authority of God. And yet, like the previous plagues that we have been looking at, God says he will set a distinguishment. He will differentiate between his people and his enemies. God intends now for his people to exercise their faith and publicly mark out their allegiance to him. It's a typological act of worship that we'll explore, again, more fully in two weeks. But put simply, what God wants his people to do here is to demonstrate and declare their faith, their trust, their belief is in Yahweh. They are set apart by their faith in their God over and against the Egyptians. So what Moses told Pharaoh was that this judgment of death was coming. He said it will happen about midnight, but he doesn't say upon which day it will happen. So because of this, I'm sure there's a great deal of anxiety in Egypt now, right? Think about the people who now have heard this proclamation, the death of the firstborn is coming. Yahweh is going to pour out another judgment, another plague upon the people. And we've seen time and time again for nine plagues now, he's done exactly what he said. Our Egyptian gods that we've prayed for, that we've asked, please stop Yahweh, please stop this plague. They've done nothing to save us. And here Yahweh now says another plague comes. Death is coming. And so I have to imagine each day as they prepare to go to bed, knowing around midnight a plague will take place, but what day they do not know, for four days at least, there must be heavy anxiety. For God's people, in verse 3, we're told to take a lamb, set it apart on the 10th day, prepare it for sacrifice on the 14th day of the month. So there's this period of waiting that goes on here for the Egyptians and for the Israelites a period of anticipation of what is to come. Now, for the Egyptians, I'm sure this is a period of anxiety and fear. Or perhaps for some who, who have hardened and they're trying to do what sinners often try to do, they're, they're trying to, to doubt and disbelieve. Well, hey, one day passed, it didn't happen. Maybe this one's not coming. 
Maybe, maybe, God, maybe their God's wrong. There's doubt in them, perhaps. Disbelief that they want to hold on to. But for the people of God, this period of waiting is to be filled with something totally different. It's to be filled with faith and acts of obedience, trust, and time of preparation by God's people. Now, we relate to this because you and I, we live in a period of waiting here right now, too. We are not waiting for a temporal judgment of a plague, but we are waiting for the eternal and final judgment to come. We know God has promised that that is at the end, and yet we are not there yet. We're in a period of waiting, and what we do right now matters. What we do in this life, we know the end is to come, yet it's not here yet. So this life, these short years that we have here, we know from the word of God impact eternity. And we have the choice before us. We can waste this life with temporal pursuits, with pleasures and sins that feel good for a while, but in the end will be consumed and burned up at the final judgment. Or we can serve and worship God obediently. And in doing so, have an eternal impact on the people around us as we share the good news of the gospel with them. We have two choices. But understand, this period of waiting that we're in is purposeful. God has you and I here in these moments for a reason. There's a purpose for you and I, a mission for us to accomplish. So don't settle and waste this life being disobedient to God, ignoring his plan for our lives, his command upon you and I to worship him and to proclaim his gospel passionately and to make disciples daily. That's what we're here for. The Israelites here in their season of waiting are preparing for this act of worship and this public declaration of their faith in God. And on that 14th day of the month, they are to make a sacrifice that will show everyone who they are trusting, who they are obeying. Not the Egyptian idols, but Yahweh, their God. You and I too must be prepared to be public with our faith. Not just in our homes, not just in the gatherings in this building, in the privacy of the closed doors here, but in demonstration of obedience and faith to God, that should take place every day in our lives with the people that we encounter in our daily activities. Maybe that's work, maybe that's a run to the grocery store, maybe friendships, whatever it is. You and I are called there to be public about our faith in this season of waiting that we are in. And God tells Moses that after they've prepared, And on the 14th day, after they have made the sacrifice of the lamb, look at verse 7. Then the people shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel, that's the header beam over the door, of the houses in which they eat. Now think carefully about what this means, what this act says to those who observe it. God's people are now commanded by God. They're, they're told, you are going to go out to your flocks and pick out one spotless year-old lamb with no blemish, no defect on it. You can't choose the weakest one that you think, eh, it's probably not going to make it anyway, so let's just kill it and get it over with. No, you have to go out and choose the very best of your flock and bring it in. Now, I've thought often about how costly this command is for the people of Israel. When you go back and you, you start to realize the, the, the kind of the um, weight of the commands of the law and the sacrificial system, it's not an easy and light thing to do. It's something that cost people greatly, and that was intentional. God wanted people to know your sin has consequences. 
steep consequences, expensive consequences, as something is going to have to die. Not something weak, not something worthless, something valuable to you. So even in normal and good times, this is a costly command for the people to obey, to give the best that they have. But here in Exodus, this is even more striking because in this moment, this is an even greater amount of cost assigned to these lambs because of the reality of the devastation to all the Egyptian flocks, right? You remember, the value of the lambs have to be at kind of an all-time high right now because the Egyptians have suffered the loss of half of all their livestock in the plague that affected livestock, and then the, the others that were left out in the field in the plague of the hail killed more of them. So you imagine these flocks have been decimated, some probably entirely wiped out, some just a few pieces of livestock left, but Israel has all of their flock there. So it's simple economics, right? Just like we saw with COVID-19 and lumber. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the price of a lamb when there's not many lambs to go around surely is at an all-time high. Just a couple weeks ago, uh, Eric and I, Eric Hathaway and I, were, were joking. He had bought a piece of plywood for a project he was doing, didn't end up having to use it. So he's like, hey, I'm loading that up in my truck, and I'm taking it back to return it, get my money back. And we're like, well, man, you get money back on that one sheet of plywood. You could probably stop on the way home, have a nice steak dinner, fill up the truck, still have money in your pocket by the time you get home, right? The, the price of lumber went up so high so fast. Just crazy how much something cost. Why? because there wasn't enough of it to go around. That's the situation here in Exodus. There's not enough livestock for the Egyptians. Surely they would have paid the highest premium that you could ask for to get these lambs. But what did God tell them to do? Not take the best of your flock, go out, sell it to the Egyptians, make a handsome profit, and in this way I will build up the treasury of Israel. No. He says, take the best, the most costly of the lambs that you have, bring it in your home for four days. And on the 14th of this month, you are to slaughter it, not sell it. And as they slaughter the perfect lamb that they have selected, that blood gushes out, it stains that perfect white spotless lamb. They're to take some of that blood that has been spilled and spread it now upon the door frame of the house in which they lived for everyone to see. What a statement that'd be to the Egyptians, right? Here we are, our flocks are decimated. What are the Israelites doing? They're killing the best of their flock and painting their doors with their blood. This act of sacrifice surely had to take faith on the part of the Israelites, didn't it? Like, really, God? Slaughter, not sell? Like, are, are, we, are we sure? But they did. They obeyed here. It was costly to obey God in this way, to sacrifice it completely. But that understanding comes from an understanding of who God is and what God deserves. He's not a God who's just worthy of the extras in our life. He's worthy of the very best we have to offer. So this is a key part of what God's teaching through the sacrificial system as a whole and through the establishment of it here in Exodus at the Passover. He wants his people to understand. He's teaching them. He's teaching us today this same principle that God is a God who deserves our very best because he's worthy of far more than we could ever give him. He's not worth just one perfect spotless lamb per family. He's worth far more than that. But anything less than that, anything less than the best they have to offer, is certainly an insult to who he is. Understand this morning, 
God is not interested in or pleased in you just giving him the scraps of your life. Very practically, understand, the Lord's not pleased at all when we come in to the church gathering just because that's the ritual, that's the rhythm of our life. We just go on Sunday. It's what we've always done. He's not pleased if we just come in here with distracted hearts and wandering minds and uninterested, unintending to hear him speak to us and obey those things and grow in knowledge of him. If we come in here just because it's something to do, the Lord is not pleased. You're not giving him what he deserves. God specifically will tell Israel later through the prophets that their sacrifices, their worship, their singing, their observation of all the festivals and all the laws and the commands that he's giving them, all of those things as they do them actually anger him and are abominations before him because they are doing it out of ritual with insincere hearts that are far from him. When God looks at the worship of his people, he's not looking merely at the external things we are doing. He's looking at your heart. Are we giving him everything? Are we giving him the best that we have to offer? Or are we playing, putting up a veneer? God sees right through it. The New Testament tells us that the acceptable worship we are to offer our God is that we would lay down our lives for him. That's all-encompassing, laying down our desires, our pursuits, our pleasures, our earnings, our pride, our reputation, our everything, that we would lay that down and live in obedience to him, in love of him. That's acceptable worship, to serve him and obey him and grow in our knowledge and our experience of him day by day and be part of his mission to proclaim his gospel to this world. Anything less than that is unacceptable to him, no matter how good it may look on the outside. We insult God when we offer him less than our best, less than everything that we have. He's not pleased when we try to keep a few things back for us and just give him the extras that we're okay to let go of. The sacrifice of the Passover lamb was a costly sacrifice for the people of Israel in that day. But there's more than just showing them the cost of truly worshiping their God. There's a much deeper and more crucial symbolism that's brought out in the meaning of these acts, as God explains in verse 13 of chapter 12. The blood shall be assigned to you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The blood is a sign of salvation to God's people. When God's people were looked at the blood, smeared upon the doorpost, staining the doorpost, they were to remember not just the costly sacrifice that was made, but they're to look at the blood and see in the blood grace and deliverance and the saving mercy of God for his people. The blood is the sign that a substitute death death has taken place, that the lamb has paid the price so that the firstborn in this household, this family, does not have to die as judgment. In verses 21 to 23, Moses tells the people, the words from God, and the people respond rightly in verses 27, 28. The people, having heard all of this, now bow their heads and worship. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As Yahweh had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Don't make a mistake. The price was high. The sacrifice they were to offer was costly. But the promise of God for deliverance far outweighed all of those considerations. 
The people of Israel now know, after nine plagues, after God sparing them time after time after time, and they saw what happened to Egypt all around them, they know for sure God is to be worshipped and obeyed no matter what cost, no matter what personal sacrifice that may take. So they obeyed and did exactly as Moses told them to do. And now on the 14th day of the month, look at verses 29 to 30. At midnight, Yahweh struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. As in every single case of promise and plague that we've seen throughout Exodus, as every single case that you will see throughout the entire Bible, when God prophetically promises something will come to pass, when he says, I will do this, God does it. He wasn't bluffing. He wasn't making a prediction that he could have been wrong about how it took place. Maybe it's the firstborn in some houses and the secondborn in others. No, God knew exactly. God wasn't stopped. He wasn't hindered at all by any of the false gods the Egyptians were praying to, saying, deliver us from Yahweh, spare us from this death. They could do nothing to stop him. God does exactly what he says because he is the true sovereign ruler. Him alone, no one else can stop him, compare to him, do anything against him. He rules over all. And so we must understand that this judgment that's poured out here, the specificity of it is it targets the death of the firstborn in each family, even the remaining livestock. That's not a natural occurrence. Skeptics always try to explain these things away. If you read commentaries about the plagues, they'll, they'll speculate, oh, maybe when the frogs came, they brought this disease and that caused this next thing, blah, blah, blah. There's nothing, nothing in creation to explain the death of the firstborn and only the firstborn. There's no virus that can target firstborn people. This was a divine action undertaken by the sovereign God, specifically foretold so they would know it was him that those who refused to submit to God and persist in their sins would understand his authority over them. So I understand the main question when we come to this text, when we get to this plague in particular, is not really about, well, how did that happen physically? What, what, what caused those things? Or, or what, what year was this? We know the 14th day of the month, but, but what year are we talking about? How can we date these things? No, the primary question, the bigger question for most people is simply, why would God do this? Why this judgment? Why the death of the firstborn in every house who, who failed to submit to him, failed to honor him. Isn't that extreme? Isn't the death of these firstborns too strong a reaction? The answer to that question is really important because it comes back to the most fundamental part of having true knowledge, understanding who God is and understanding who we are. If you don't get that answer right, you won't answer the question about why this in the 10th plague. So humanity continues to think we are vastly more important and we are vastly better than we are. 
For, for thousands and thousands of years, humanity has lived with the arrogant assumption that everything that exists around us exists for us. That we are the center of the story. That we are the primary players in this narrative that exists. We are the ones who matter the most. And every once in a while, we get the realization that some people are really bad. When a Hitler comes to power, a Stalin, some other person like that, we realize, yeah, there's some really bad people out there. But the majority of cultures still hold to the mantra that everyone is really just pretty good naturally. And you might have some issues, but that comes from a bad upbringing, that comes from bad circumstances, comes from maybe poor choices that you have made. But in their heart, they're a good person, right? You've heard that. That's what our society says. And it's that belief, which is false, it's that belief that undergirds a lot of the issues that we see today. That's the, that's the assumption that everyone's good in and of themselves, in their heart, in their nature, they're good. That assumption is what undergirds the entire LGBTQIA plus acceptance arguments. Because what, what do they say? What's the argument that someone will make? I'm just born this way. That's my natural inclination. That's the way I'm disposed. That's the way I'm drawn to this type of attraction. I'm oriented in that way. It's natural to me, so it must be good. It must be moral. It must be acceptable, and you must celebrate it. Why? Because our society says humanity is that we're naturally good and right. Whatever is most natural to us is good and right. That's what our culture tells us. But the Bible gives us a very different word on the matter. The Bible makes plain that we are not here for our own sake. We are not the central figures in history. The universe doesn't revolve around us or even exist primarily for our sake. Everything that exists exists because God has created it and it exists to glorify him. He's the sustainer. He's the author of it all. He's the one who's central in history. He's the one every moment that passes is supposed to be about. God is the point of everything, not humanity. And very opposite, completely opposite the assumption that people are naturally good, that our culture puts forward. The Bible tells us all of humanity is born in sin, rebels against God with hearts that are broken and wicked and deceitful above all things. Those are the Bible's words. We are not good by nature. We are sinful and wicked and rebellious. So the church should be clearly responding to the claim, I was just born this way, that's just who I am, with the biblical response, not arguing whether they were or weren't. We don't need to argue that. What we need to proclaim is this, we're all born sinners who need salvation. So it doesn't matter if you're naturally drawn towards something, if you're naturally disposed or oriented towards being a liar or an alcoholic or an idolater or covetousness or idolatry or lust or adultery or homosexuality, none of it matters. It's because you're a sinner. That's why you're drawn to it. And God, the sovereign creator, the ruler over all things, has said those things are sins. They are wrong. They will kill us. They will destroy your soul forever. The judgment of God's wrath will be poured out on all of that. And we need saving from our nature. Nobody who stays in their sins, no matter what sin it is, no matter how naturally they feel it to be right for them, if you stay in your sin, you will not enter the kingdom of God. You must be saved and purified and changed by the power of God. Our nature condemns us. It does not justify us. So if we understand that, 
that reality that the scripture puts forward, then if we feel any sense that God's judgment in the 10th plague is unjust or extreme, what that exposes in us is we really don't understand those truths. We don't really understand who God is, who we are, and how serious sin is. God is never unjust. God is never too harsh in his response to sin. God's never wrong to act as he does. God is perfect and righteous, and the plague poured out in Exodus chapter 12 is an act of perfectly justified judgment upon sinners. What occurred in the final plague was not too harsh. In fact, what takes place in the final plague is simply deserved justice being poured out on rebellious sinners who are getting what they deserve because they are sinners in their own nature. And it's mixed, not with harshness, it's actually mixed with an outpouring of undeserved grace and mercy upon Israel. Because they too, in their nature, are sinful and deserve death, deserve the wrath of God. But by his kindness and his love, he spares them. We need to be really clear on this. All of humanity deserves death and punishment for our sins. Not just that group. Not just that one sin. All of us deserve death and punishment for our sins. The Bible's overwhelming on this point. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12 tells us, explains, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Psalm 53, 2-3 is quoted multiple times all throughout the Bible. It says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Verse 3 tells us what God sees. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Death is the just punishment for sin, and every single human being that exists deserves that punishment because we're all sinners. We're fallen, corrupt, broken, internally deceived by our sinful hearts, selfish and self-worshipping, idolaters to the core. We are naturally enemies of God, and we deserve his righteous judgment to be poured out on us from the one true God who's perfect and holy and does not tolerate sin. But far too often, we want to either downplay that or mis intentionally misunderstand that. And so some people will spend years, even years in church, pretending they get this, they understand the seriousness of sin, but really they don't. They don't view sin as the deadly reality that it is. They don't treat sin like a vicious apex predator that's coming to capture and maim and destroy them. They think instead that sin's more like a pet that they can tame and control. They don't view temptation as a danger to be dealt with immediately, not coddled. And J.C. Rowell put it so clearly, his great book on holiness. He says, you can see the deceitfulness of sin in the astonishing proneness of men to regard sin as less sinful and dangerous than it is in the sight of God. You can see this in the readiness to extenuate it, make excuses for it, and minimize its guilt. Humanity is caught in this. We're people so prone to trying to excuse our sin, to try and rationalize our own sin, to run away from the reality of what our sins personally deserve. We don't understand the deadly seriousness 
of sin. We make excuses. We try to blame other people. We try to hide them in the darkness. We try to keep them secret. Again, Ryle writes so wisely and accurately, nothing, I am convinced, will astonish us so much when we awake in the resurrection day as the view we will have of sin and the retrospect we will take of our own countless shortcomings and defects. Never until the hour when Christ comes the second time will we fully realize the sinfulness of sin. (sighs) I believe so firmly that he's right. Here in this life, we do not understand our sin rightly. The consequences that our sin really do deserve. But on that resurrection day, as we enter into eternity, we'll finally get it. The depth and depravity of our sins will become aware to us. Then, for the first time, can you and I actually fully grasp the even deeper and wider and vastly more gracious love of Christ that has saved us from those things? It's that moment when we understand sin for what it is and grace for what it is that will motivate us to worship Jesus Christ for all eternity. That moment will be it. We will understand the everlasting, overwhelming grace and mercy and love of God when we see the depth of what it is he saved us from. So understand, all these events back in Exodus that we're looking at, we spent all these weeks walking through this narrative. The events specifically here in the Passover are a foreshadow a typological picture of the incredible power and promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, so many people go, ah, Old Testament, come on, let's go to the new. It's so much lighter. Let's go get some. I can do all things through Christ, right? This story speaks to us. These events matter to us. They point us to Jesus. They point us to the cross. They point us to salvation. The Israelites are commanded, act in faith and trust of me. Look at this costly sacrifice of the lamb that you will slaughter. See the blood upon the doorpost. Trust that I, God, will spare you and save you from the just wrath that is coming, from the righteous punishment and death for sinners because there was sacrificial blood shed in your place. The shedding of the blood is necessary. Sin deserves death. Something has to die. To atone for sin. Hebrews 9.22 tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so still to this day, despite all this time that's passed since Exodus chapter 12, since the first Passover, there's still only one hope, one means of salvation, and it's through the shed sacrificial blood of the lamb, but not a spotless, blemish-free, one-year-old sheep or goat. No, the final perfect salvation comes from the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who has come to take away the sins of the world. Ephesians 1, 7 tells us, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers from your nature, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, that of the lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 makes the connection clear. Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Hebrews tells us once and for all, his sacrifice pays the price, covers the debt. His blood is all we now must look to. 
The passing over of God's wrath in the 10th plague upon Egypt was just a foreshadow of how God has promised that his wrath will once again pass over those of us who trust in the blood of the Lamb of God as our substitute. Jesus slain for our sins. Jesus who died in our place, the one who paid our price. As we look to him with faith, we are saved by his grace and his mercy. Not that we've earned it, but that he freely bestows it upon those he loves. So I've been, I've been literally, as I've prayed for these weeks, I've been begging God week after week that he would make the reality of who he is and who we are and how sinful we are and how serious sin is, that he would make that real to each of us. That he would break through hardened hearts into the darkest, deepest corners of rebellion and idolatry and pride that we try to tuck away. Because I know that in this room, all of us are sinners. And some of us are still trying to walk in our sin, trying to hide it in the darkness, keep it like that pet that we're going to tame instead of killing it, instead of mortifying it. Some of us are cavalier and we're not seeing the terrible threat to our own life and to our own spiritual well-being. And so I'm praying, Lord, use this study in Exodus to do what it should. It should stir us. It should convict us. It should lead to repentance, not just remorse. It should cause us to respond week by week, humbling ourselves again and again before the one true God asking and receiving his forgiveness and grace. Worship team, if you'll come. We're going to create, again, just a few moments to respond through one Final song that we'll sing together. And if you've never repented of your sins and experienced true salvation, no matter how long you've been in church, no matter what external image you may have created, today is the day to truly, humbly put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Look to his blood to cover your sins and save you from all that you've done, from all that your nature brings out in your life. Today's the day of salvation for those who would humble themselves before God. And maybe you've done that before. Maybe, maybe today you need to repent of trying to live this Christian life and giving God something less than everything, less than the costly sacrifice that he demands. Maybe you're holding on to secret sins. Maybe it's your personal pursuits. Maybe it's your favorite idols. It's your pride. It's your image. Today, the opportunity is before us in these moments to repent and receive forgiveness because the blood of Christ does cover all the sins of his people. So don't wait and don't miss this type of moment. And perhaps today, you have needs, situations that concern you, things that are just overwhelming, problems you know that you can't handle on your own. Today is the opportunity to bring those before the God of all might and power and entrust them to him. So, so every week when we conclude like this, and I say now we have a chance to respond, and these altars are, are open, they're, they're open for, for all of us. This is not just the place to come and get saved one time and then you're good and then you stay out there and let's wait for the others to come get saved up here. No, this place, these moments are for all of us to respond. Maybe for salvation, maybe to repent, maybe to just bring our needs before the Lord because he hears and he moves. But today is the time to respond to the one true God and find mercy and grace given to us. So we're going to sing of the King of Kings, of the great God of salvation, and we're going to respond to him. Let's 
worship and pray together. You indeed are the great king, the king over all. And Lord, we thank you that you have poured out such amazing love upon us. Lord, we humble ourselves, recognizing who we are, how unworthy we are, and yet we look to you and see love at the cross, the blood shed for us in our place, that here we can come and we can bow before you and lift up our prayers and know that you hear us. What a great gift this is, God. We thank you for it. We worship you for it. Thank you for this wonderful day. Thank you for speaking to us. Lord, continue to press your word deep into our hearts. Bring us day by day to this point of humility and worship before you, Lord. And give us the strength, the conviction to put to death our sins, to see them as seriously as you see them. Help us live in ways that would glorify and honor you in all that we do, in all that we say, in all that we think, in all that we feel. We thank you for your great mercy and grace. We thank you for this wonderful salvation you have given to your people. Lord, may we live in light of it on mission every moment. It's in your beautiful, powerful name that we pray, Lord Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Amen.